I'm going to do this. I'm going to run for the United States Senate. The time is now for fresh ideas and new leadership. I'm running for student council because of you and for you. That is why I stand before you today to announce my candidacy for president of the United States of America. Welcome to the Arena Talks podcast, where we interview emerging political leaders from across the country. My name is Robbie Gupta, co-founder and managing partner of Arena. And today we're going to talk about the future of New York City, my hometown. And we're going to hear from two folks who are at the top of many people's lists as the most likely to succeed Mayor de Blasio as mayor of New York City. Uh, first up will be New York City Comptroller Scott Stringer. The Comptroller's office is kind of like a combination of a CFO and ombudsman for the city. And Scott has been in New York City politics for a long time, and he's going to talk about the ups and downs in the history of New York and how uh, New York is defined in many ways by its crises. He's also going to talk about his late mother who recently passed away from COVID-19. Then we're going to hear from Eric Adams, who's Brooklyn's borough president. And Eric is super interesting, not just because of his office and because he's at the front lines of the response in Brooklyn, but also because he spent 22 years as an officer, first with New York City Transit and then with the NYPD. And so he's going to share his thoughts about how we best can be supporting first responders and other essential employees throughout the city. But before we get to our guests, I just want to lay out where we are right now as a city in New York. Uh, as I'm speaking, this is uh, April 28th, uh, 2020. Uh, we've had 17,000 plus deaths statewide. In New York, we've had over 150,000 confirmed cases of the virus. And uh, there's a lot of data that tells us that the number of uh, cases of the virus are probably much, much higher than the 150,000 official. Uh, and we've been working with our friends over at a company called Elucid, uh, who has a website called covidattitudes.com, which has been tracking New York City residents' perceptions of uh, daily life uh, under COVID-19. And they also have uh, national level data as well. And one thing that the folks at Elucid found is that a higher percentage of New Yorkers than ever before believe that adjustments to daily life on account of COVID-19 will last into 2021. And so it looks like residents of New York are getting themselves ready for what is going to be a, uh, a long-term adjustment to life in the city because of this virus. And if you take that with the data that just recently came out of the governor's office, which says that New York could lose up to 14% of its GDP and have a recession worse uh, than 08, 09, uh, and likely take three plus years to recover. It looks like we're in for a long battle here in the city of New York. And so this episode could not be more timely. And so with that, we're gonna start uh, with Scott Stringer, comptroller of the city of New York. Well, Scott Stringer, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Scott, I just wanted to start by wishing uh, you my condolences uh, on the loss of your mother. Uh, I know she was so important to you. Uh, she, she, she was a great lady. And, you know, I think a lot of people are feeling this tremendous loss of parents and grandparents and no closure because there's no uh, religious service. You can't be at the burial. And so it really has impacted families in ways we're probably never going to truly understand. But all the more reason that we have to be mindful of just the kind of pandemic we're in. And I know, uh, I know you're responsible for a lot of people. Uh, you have a huge office and a huge responsibility for uh, the city of New York, but I just wanted to start by asking how you're doing throughout all of this. I know you're a parent, you're a son, uh, and a public servant. Just how are you feeling? 
look, this is not a this is not an easy time. I got an eight year old and a six and a half year old who uh, are learning remotely. That's challenging. Uh, my wife Elise uh, runs a big nonprofit, and that's challenging. But look, we're a family like all families in New York City. Uh, this virus has hit us hard. Uh, this virus is really impacting communities, especially communities that have long been disenfranchised. But I'm not down about it. I believe this is when public service means the most. And you get out there and you fight every day. And that's what our office is doing. We're issuing reports. We're doing the budget analysis. But we're also thinking about the comeback, how we make New York bigger and better than ever before. I've always felt that this city is the greatest city on earth, the center of the universe. And I've been here through all the crises. I remember as a kid, uh, the fiscal crisis in the 1970s when the city was on the edge of bankruptcy. My mom was one of those pioneering women in the name of Bella Abzug and Shirley Chisholm. She was a elected official, served in the city council during that time period. We've all been through the fiscal crisis in 2008, 9-11 and uh, the hurricane, the tragic hurricane. So here we go again, and there's a lot that government can do to make the lives of people who are suffering easier. And we're gonna to try to do that in the coming months and coming years. So for people who are not familiar with the office of the New York City Comptroller, you wanna walk us through a little bit about what the office does uh, and why it's particularly important at a time like this. Well, we call this office the people's office, because so much of what we do is watch the backs of working people and struggling New Yorkers. We audit and investigate city agencies that aren't doing right by people in the city. We register contracts, which sounds ministerial, but it's actually protecting the interests of our not-for-profits and the people who are the frontline workers. Uh, we tangle with City Hall and hold them to a high standard because government must serve all the people, not just certain zip codes. And when you put it all together, this office does think about the fiscal, the, the fiscal health of New York in good times and in bad. And when you take the 800 people who work in our office, now they're working remotely, so we've saved lives in our office, they're working every day to make sure that we get out of this, both from a health perspective, but also from an economic perspective, because people got to eat, people got to feed families. There are too many people who are homeless with no hope. There are too many people that government has failed, city government has failed. I'm tired of people talking about a tale of two cities, and we're still talking about a tale of two cities eight years after we had that conversation. So I'm revved up, I'm a little fired up about the future, but this is when we got to step up and do the right thing. And so, you know, you've been talking for a long time now about the need for the city to make better financial decisions and fiscal decisions. You've been calling for the city to have stronger reserves uh, before any of this happened. Uh, but here we are, and both publicly and privately, I can attest to the fact that you've been pretty alarmed about all of this uh, be before this emergency, because you know, you've been around the block long enough to know that emergencies come in New York. That's just where we're on the grand stage and things hit us harder than anywhere else. Given everything that's happened and everything you know about where we are right now, what should New Yorkers know, or even just people who, you know, we have a national audience, you know, there are people who are in other cities, but who care about the future of this city. As of today, it's April 23rd, we're having this conversation. What do we know about the fiscal health and future of New York City and what kind of sacrifices can we expect moving forward? We didn't save enough for the rainy day that always comes. We mentioned earlier all the episodic events in the last 20, 30 years, 40 years have come in New York, and there's too many. 
And the way we weather those uh, moments is by having a robust savings plan so we don't have to cut essential services. We can keep people uh, employed in city government. We can make sure that the safety net is preserved. And I went to the mayor and the city council for years and said, look, we are in good times. We are flush with money, but these good times don't last forever. So you got to save like we're not in good times. And that didn't happen. And our savings is way too low given the epidemic that we're facing. But look, we have to move forward. It's a lesson for governments and urban centers around the country. It's hard to save in good times, right? We all want that extra money in our pocket, but now what do we do? Well, we need to fight and unify around a real federal stimulus package that is also gonna invent, uh, invest rather in urban centers and urban America. New York City is at the epicenter of this uh, virus. And yet, when you look at the federal stimulus package, uh, New York City gets about $155,000 per person uh, based on how many virus uh, recipients we have. When you look at like South Dakota, they have like 40 uh, people who've gotten corona and they're getting 1.2 million a person. This is just an absolute outrage. So I want people to start thinking of what Maxine Waters is talking about. We need a multi-billion dollar rent stimulus package so people can cancel their rent so they don't fa uh, face eviction. We need massive investments in infrastructure and human infrastructure, I must say, from the federal government to keep uh, our economies afloat. And then we need a plan to reopen New York. We have to have two tracks. We have to have the track that continues to think about ways to create real social distancing, but we also have to think about how we bring our economy back. And when we bring the economy back, we can't have one size fits all. This disease discriminates. And the people who are losing their lives, the people who are most vulnerable, are people who are in communities of color because the investment was never about closing the health disparities for black and brown people, people who live in the Bronx. When my mom passed away, you know, she was a Bronxite all, all the way. And the doctors there told me, look, there's a lot of younger people who are dying, Latinos, uh, people who had diabetes and health disparities. And so that's who's coming into the hospital. And it made me think, well, where have we been for the last 10, 20 years? What has city government invested in to alleviate that? So Ravi, there's a lot to think about how we create a different, a new New York, a more powerful New York that finally addresses income disparity, health disparity, uh, transportation disparity, we could have play a role in sort of thinking about what New York has always, has, should have always been in the last 10, 15 years. And so, you know, we like to joke sometimes about uh, some of our politicians in the city who aren't really from here. Uh, sometimes it's, you know, in good times, it's about sports and it's about uh, good natured fun. Uh, you know, we have a, a few prominent Bostonians uh, at the helm of our city right now. Uh, some good friends of ours. But, you know, one thing that strikes me about you, Scott, and maybe you can't go as far as I can because you're more polite, is that uh, what you said about the history of this city and what we've been through, maybe I'm wrong about this, but it, it might take a New Yorker to really understand, uh, to really think around, uh, to, to anticipate around some of these corners about some of the dark days that New York can have uh, because a lot of people have only been here during boom times. Is there something to that? Look, we, we, all, we all think about our own experiences. And 
you know, I came of age at a very different time when there were 2,000 murders a year. The A train was a rolling crime scene. I grew up in Washington's uptown. Uh, I remember at John F. Kennedy High School when there weren't enough school books, the fiscal crisis was pushing us over the edge. And man, it was not easy back then, but there was always these pioneers, people who didn't flee the city, who stayed and built up our communities. I always called them the pioneers. And they made it possible for new immigrants and people of all different backgrounds to come here, even at the toughest moments. And I have always thought that in my time in government, I've drawn on that experience, that real life experience. It's not always about rooting for this sports team or that sports team. Look, I'm a suffering Jet fans. I also know that a gritty New Yorker is the best kind of, of person. And it doesn't have to be someone like me who's born and raised here, but my experiences are quite different from a lot of the elected officials today. And I wouldn't trade it for a second, even all those tough times back then. And so if people are starting to think about uh, the road ahead, there is a significant chance that we lose a decent amount of our population as a city uh, in the years ahead, just because, you know, there's almost a freeze on any new movement coming into the city for a while. and there are a lot of people who are losing jobs and going back uh, to wherever their families were. And, and a lot of people are not from New York originally. Tourism is going to go down. Uh, with this loss of density, at least in the short term for the city, is there anything we can do as a city to, to almost like take advantage of that and say, hey, this is not an ideal situation. But if there are, are less commercial businesses, there are less people, there are less tourists. Is there anything like the city can do to actually turn that into uh, a strength moving forward, given the fact that we can't really control a lot of it? Well, I'm not going to give up on the vibrancy of this city. Uh, I don't accept population loss in the long term. This is the center of the universe. This is the most diverse city in the world. This is the economic center of the world. Uh, Just because Donald Trump and the buffoons in Washington don't realize it, and every moment in time of crisis, New York has always been the economic generator. We have our challenges, but if you're young and vibrant and you come from a place all over the world, this is the place you aspire to be. And I actually think New York will rebound because I've heard this story before, growing up in the 70s, flight out of the city because the city was on the edge of bankruptcy. After 9-11, people were packing up and saying, I'm going to leave. But what happened after that? New York came back bigger than ever. The fiscal crisis in 2008 said, well, the economy's gone to hell, and now we have to move out. But that didn't happen. So I bet long on New York City every single time. And the New Yorkers who have always made this the center of the world, well, that's our greatest strength is our people. So no, I'm not thinking people are leaving. You may want to stay with your parents for a while, and you should, you have to take care of them. But I think you're going to see a generation of New Yorkers who want to do business here, who want to be at the center of culture here. The challenge for us in government is what does the new city look like? And how do we make sure in an era of what will be social distancing and other issues, how do we create a new city that everyone can live in? We don't have to have a scaled down city. We just have to have a more inclusive city, a city that's going to take into consideration every zip code and also by extension rebuilding the economy so that we can be a place everyone wants to come. So last topic for you, 
Uh, you're at the center of the conversation uh, for 2021 in the city of New York, like who will lead the city moving forward. One thing you said earlier in this conversation is uh, there's this talk of a tale of two cities, but there really hasn't been the walking of the walk there. You know, for, for voters who endorsed uh, a progressive vision of the city years ago and have been living through this administration, what did we get wrong and what, and what did the mayor get wrong here? And what, uh, moving forward, can we say to voters who maybe are losing faith in our ability as a city to see through a progressive vision? Well, I think we have a progressive vision. And there are many times that when the mayor has offered his progressive vision, I stood with him. I mean, pre-K being a leading example, something that he can be totally proud of. And there have been many moments when the talk of income inequality has been heartfelt and real, and there have been accomplishments to be sure. But we now have to, I think, have a progressive administration that knows how to govern, especially in these very difficult times. We need a progressive who has real on-the-job experience because you can't leave it to chance. This is not about speechifying and, I don't know, dancing around. This is about thinking strategically about the economy we want for younger people. We want to make sure that we can safely open our schools and our colleges. We have to make sure that the people who are in the gig economy and the frontline workers in particular, the doctors and the nurses, the people who are today's heroes, we need to get them the resources they need. I mean, I love parades. I love ticker tape parades, but man, Ravi, hook up the people who every day go to work not knowing that they're going to ever see their child again, right? Think about the nurse and the doctor. This is no time for clowning around. This is going to be a very serious future discussion about our city. And I've said right now, mayoral race, not thinking about it. I got one job to do. I got to make sure that my children are safe, that they're going to get a quality education. And I want to make sure that children around the city came up to learn remotely. I gave the mayor permission to put the uh, iPads into everyone's homes. They got to get to doing that. And let's put politics aside right now and let's think about how we build our city. And let's do it with everybody. Let's not just do it with the Wall Street elites. Let's not just do it with big business leaders. Let's get on the ground. Let's start talking to not for profit, small business owners, get them in a conversation fight like hell in Washington for a real stimulus package for urban America. Listen to what Maxine Waters is saying about canceling rent and rent subsidies so we don't have soup lines and people lying on the streets. And let's create a progressive government, but our expertise is in the governing of progressivism. Well, uh, Scott, I want to thank you both for joining us today, but for everything you're doing for the city right now. This was an illuminating conversation and uh, we wish you the best of luck out there. Let me just say the work that you're doing at the arena is groundbreaking. You're ushering the next generation of political leadership. I see the fruits of your labor. And I know that you're going to have to, you know, you're a people person. I just can't imagine you at home trying to run this massive national organization. But I have very great feelings that you're going to be leading uh, a lot of the movement we talked about uh, today. Well, thank you, Scott. Next up, we have Brooklyn's Borough President Eric Adams. Borough President Eric Adams, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. You know, we would normally be having this conversation at the Park Plaza Diner in Brooklyn. You know, you and I meet up about once a month and talk New York City politics. I, I look forward to the day when we can do this in person again. 
So true. We all are. We all miss that face-to-face -face interaction. And Zoom is probably the next best thing to be in there. That's right. Uh, and before we even talk politics or policy, tell me how you're doing. Uh, you're at the center of this whole thing. How are you doing? How's your staff doing? How's your borough doing? Oh, good. Um, the bulk of my staff is telecommuting. They're actually doing their job from home. We're still serious, receiving hundreds of calls um, throughout the week, and we're still dealing with the trauma that people are experiencing. And keep in mind, the presence of coronavirus does not mean the disappearance of the crises that people are facing, and we're really adjusting uh, those crises. And then I have a small team who are like foreign war correspondents. They say, we don't want to be um, inside a room somewhere. We want to be on the ground. It's been about five or six of my team members that have been with me every day uh, since coronavirus. I shifted my living arrangements from home to the office. I've been living in the office uh, for the entire 40 plus days and really just dealing with those traumas on the ground. And so uh, that's amazing. Uh, and you mentioned that there were crises before this virus that uh, are uh, playing out in even more stark ways because of the virus. Do you want to talk about a few of those? Yes, the term that we've become used to nowadays, uh, the terminology of pre-existing conditions. Uh, those are healthcare conditions that people had, uh, chronic diseases that people had before coronavirus. And those pre-existing conditions are really problematic. 94% of individuals who lost their life to coronavirus had a pre-existing conditions. What is that fancy term? It means asthma, respiratory issues, diabetes, uh, heart disease, other conditions that fed into the crisis. And when you look at uh, who uh, predominantly had those pre-existing conditions, poor communities, lack of health care, lack of access to food, uh, food swamps, deserts, or apartheid, whatever terminology you want, it basically means not having healthy food. So it fed uh, the crises and the dual response in the city, and we were trying to adjust those simultaneously. And so it was an assessment out of the governor's office that came out in the past few days that says New York uh, is standing to lose potentially 14% of its GDP uh, and could take uh, more than three years to recover from this. And, and the report said that this is likely to be worse than the 08-09 recession. Uh, given that what you just said about the inequalities that existed before the virus and, uh, and now we're going through this, this crisis right now, um, what do we need moving forward in the city? How do we respond to this virus, not just in the days ahead, but in the months and years ahead to make sure that the most vulnerable in the city uh, aren't even worse off than they were before this? We have to have a real tough conversation because we have to shift to this new norm uh, that uh, pandemics, superbugs, viruses, uh, this is in our future if we don't change directions on how we are living, um, not only as New Yorkers and Brooklynites, but really as human beings, our different relationship with our planet, uh, using uh, the overuse of antibiotics uh, for chickens, uh, the overuse of antibiotics on other animal products, the destruction of the planet uh, by using the burning of the Amazon, our air filter, of our globe to have raised cattle and cattle feed and chicken feed, um, our hospital systems treating, uh, really treating symptoms and not underlying causes. We have to rethink 
how we have been handling uh, the healthcare crises that we're facing. It's not sustainable. Uh, when you look at 84 million people are pre-diabetic, 30 million people are diabetic, spending 80 cents on a dollar on chronic diseases. When we talk about where can we save and do cost savings, we could do it by being more preventive and not reactionary. And this is really crucial because coronavirus was supposed to have been fought on two fronts. We were supposed to have intervention and prevention. Intervention was the large population of people who had coronavirus to treat them. And then we were supposed to have a prevention plan to prevent people from getting coronavirus. We had a prevention plan for those who could telecommute, but we had no prevention plan for those who were considered the essential workers. And oftentimes they were black and brown, uh, uh, low skill, underskill, uh, low income, living in very uh, difficult and challenging conditions. There was no plan to prevent them from continuing to get coronavirus. And so uh, in, in thinking about uh, the city right now, uh, you know, we have a city that's still under lockdown, uh, April, you know, we're in April 27th. Um, what is your assessment of our mayor's response so far to this, uh, to the virus, to the outbreak? Uh, what has he done right? Uh, and what were some critical mistakes that he may have made that have gotten us here? And, and, I, and that's, a, that's a great question, and, but I, I, I really believe we need to be extremely careful because oftentimes we look at the role that the mayor has played um, when we need to look at the executives across the entire uh, country on each level. I think the failure of the president in getting the needed resources on the ground uh, and making sure that we had some of the basic of uh, using our buying powers. I think the failure of the governor and the mayor to coordinate together, we were getting different messages around testing, different messages around school closures and um, school reopening, uh, different me messages around resources coming on the ground, around personal protection equipment. And so that lack of coordination uh, and communication, I think played to really not being able to have a more smoother run of our system. And so I think that the biggest failure that has occurred in the, on the city level and on the state and federal level is our failure to coordinate and to communicate. And because of that dysfunctionality in communications, it impacted all of the agencies that had to respond to the coronavirus uh, pandemic. And so uh, you're, in the middle of a lot of speculation and conversation around 2021, uh, the future of New York City, uh, and the conversation around who the next mayor will be. What do you think voters now going through this crisis, you know, inevitably, even in the best circumstance, the, this virus and the response to the virus will be a key issue uh, in 2021. Um, I know you've got your constituents on your mind right now, and you're not thinking ahead to that election. But what do you think uh, the voters of this city and, and just the people of the city are looking for in their next leaders, you know, from the mayor's office all the way down. So two, uh, two areas. Uh, one, economics. Economics uh, is a real issue, as you indicated, uh, after September 11th and the 2008 uh, stock market uh, crash and financial fiasco we had to experience. And the after 9-11, 
uh, Mayor Bloomberg inherited a $4.8 billion budget deficit. He had to go to the real estate community and to bail out the city. In 2008, we experienced the same. The mayor, again, uh, went to the real estate community to bail us out. Uh, we can't only find that model. We have a potential to have anywhere to a $10 billion budget deficit. So we have to think differently about finding the resources to continue our city uh, to run. But something that coronavirus exposed that I had talked about for many years from my days of policing and using real data and uh, technology to ensure your city functions correctly is that we can't continue to have a dysfunctional city. While city is not being able to operate in real time, make smart decisions, and ensure that there's a coordinated and coordination of all of our city agencies. That was exposed now. So the next mayor um, must be able to properly coordinate our cities and using uh, the limited amount of financial resources to make sure the taxpayers are getting their money's worth. And when you look at uh, my experience of not only coming with my uh, computer background of understanding real-time government, being part of the first uh, real-time crime fighting apparatus, but also managing the crises. Uh, there's not a lot, lot of people in government uh, that was on the ground in 9-11 uh, and was part of that rebuilding process. I was there, I was on the ground. And I think that when you look at what happened here, managing crises is part of the everyday interaction of what the future is going to hold. That's why I'm on the ground every day. The view on the ground is different from the view in the air. Marines view of a war is different from the view of our Air Force. They have an important role to give them the firepower, but the reality is when you hit that beach, that's a different interpretation of what is happening in real time. And so, you know, let's talk about that. I think one thing that I really admire about you uh, is that before all this happened, you were talking about issues that a lot of people roll their eyes at, but are real issues for New Yorkers. A good example is the rat issue, for example. Like I think a lot of people um, had a lot of fun with uh, your efforts to try to contain the rat problem in Brooklyn. But what I was telling people at the time is, uh, if you know, the you know, a, a borough president chasing down rats is funny unless you have a, a problem with rats where you live, and then the minute you have it, it's the most important issue you're dealing with, right? Um, so pushing on what you said a little bit, tell me more and tell our listeners more about what is actually happening on the ground in Brooklyn uh, that may be surprising, like maybe a few stories your constituents or things that you're seeing out in the community. Let's take just for example, what happened um, at the beginning of coronavirus, and I uh, had meetings with all of the presidents of my hospital, and something came out of one of the meetings. Uh, this was at the beginning. Whenever you wanted to receive a test for coronavirus, uh, you had to pass uh, this hurdle that the CDC put in place that if you had flu-like symptoms, you would be tested uh, based on the Department of Health approving the test. When this happened, my presidents of my hospital in Central Brooklyn said that for every person that had all of the symptoms that didn't indicate they had the flu, we went to seek permission to get tested by the Department of Health. For every 10 requests we made, only one was approved. So we were undercounting 
central Brooklyn, and I'm pretty sure that's the same in Queens and the outer boroughs. That was a serious problem because if we were not properly letting a person know that they had coronavirus, they were bringing it back home to their families and infecting their entire families. And in often cases, they were essential employees. And I sound the alarm and say, this is a problem. We have to increase the number of tests in the process. And then the Department of uh, Health in the city, uh, Health and Mental Hygiene, they came out with a ruling that if all hospitals, if you were not admitting someone to the hospital, you are not to give them a test. So we were having people from Brownsville, South Jamaica, Queens, South Bronx, going to the hospital with flu-like symptoms, not enough to be admitted, but they were, were not being tested. They were sending back home. And in some cases, those people went back home and died. They went back home and infected their family members and it caused this problem. So we failed to identify quickly what areas were being under-tested given the lack of resources. And that is why when you looked at the analysis of what communities had the highest number of cases, the highest number of deaths, it was showing what communities uh, were impacted by this the most. And we failed to identify this early on, we could have put the resources on the ground. Yeah, I, I hear you on that. You know, where, I, where my family is in Staten Island is where there are a ton of uh, essential workers, whether it's city employees or uh, people who work uh, in and around the other essential parts of the economy, Amazon workers, delivery workers, and the spread there uh, has been one of the most intractable. It, it, you know, while the rest of the city was coming down, uh, it was continuing to increase in Staten Island. You were a city employee before you were Burr president. You were a transit and then an NYPD officer, uh, I think for 22 years. Yes. Um, what are you seeing right now on the front lines from you know, our police officers, our firefighters, uh, our transit workers? What are you hearing from them uh, that you think more politicians need to hear and understand? And, and, and not only hear, they need to see, because there's a difference. You know, throughout my time here in Borough, Pres in Borough Hall as a borough president, I created sister city agreement. I always saw Brooklyn as the third largest city in America, and we need to establish uh, international relationships. So I traveled back and forth to China and other countries to develop sister city agreements. So when coronavirus left Wuhan and came to America, I immediately got on the phone and I spoke with my sister cities and asked them for PPEs, uh, personal protection equipment. They assisted me. We, we received almost 100,000 pieces of PPEs here in Brooklyn because of those relationships. I was able to see firsthand my correction officers, my grocery uh, store clerks, my school crossing guards, my nurses, I was able to see firsthand that they were not getting PPEs on the ground. Regardless of what we're saying at the 20,000 feet level, I was able to see firsthand when I walked inside Downstate Hospital, Whitecourt Hospital, Woodhall, Brookdale, I was able to see hospital staff wearing masks for a week, which was, which was in complete violation of the infectious disease control procedures. Um, having saliva-filled, dirty masks with all sorts of germs on it. And so because I was not only speaking to people or reading the daily briefings, since I was able to see firsthand, I was able to respond firsthand. We gave thousands of masks to our hospitals, 
thousands of protective equipment to our hospitals, our police officers, ACS employees, our correction officers, our transit employees. We were handing our masks to TA employees when the transit authority had a warehouse full of masks and refused to turn it over to them. We were giving them their employees the masks before the 80 transit employees uh, died. We were doing it with the Department of Correction and other locations. So it was, it was that visual on the ground, front line, not telecommuting as an elected official, but being on the ground with those people we call essential employees that I saw firsthand of uh, the inclement weather that was on our shores and making those decisions firsthand. And that was very important. And so many of our frontliners are extremely disgruntled. That's why NASNA is suing the city right now because of, of the misleading information of giving uh, their nurses the uh, PPEs they need. That's why the Department of Correction sued the city because of having their offices work 24 hour shifts and not allowing them to wear equipment. And you're going to see more unions come forward when they start telling the horrific stories of what happens to their members. And so there's a level of disgruntle, but they're professionals, they responded, they did their jobs, and now we must be there for them in the future. You know, one community that you have that you're really close with and, and also a population that's pretty significant in your borough is the uh, Chinese American community. And, you know, I think it's safe to say that they've been hit as hard or harder than any other community with this virus, not because of the virus itself, but because of public perceptions of it that go back before the, uh, the widespread social distancing and isolation that we see right now, Chinatown, and Sunset Park and other areas were already hitting a recession because people weren't going there and, uh, and Chinese Americans were facing bullying. What are you seeing from the Chinese American community right now in New York City and what do they need from us? Uh, let me tell you a, a beautiful love story that is part of the underlying uh, narrative that is going to come out. Uh, even when their restaurants were closing, even when they were being assaulted on the streets and treated unfairly based on some of the terminology that was coming from the national level of calling this a Chinese virus, people attacking them for wearing a mask. Uh, even with all of that as a backdrop, um, the amount of participation from the Chinese Americans in the Chinese community has been astonishing. Our NYCHA project that we have been giving a mask to NYCHA residents to prevent the spread of coronavirus. That project has been sponsored by the Chinese community. They have supplied uh, thousands of masks uh, to NYCHA residents. They have sponsored many of the uh, feeding programs that we're doing in our hospitals and providing food and protective gear. They have stepped up, even with all of the horrific actions that they had to endure, they have stated, in spite of our pain, we're gonna be purposeful in this moment. It's similar to what I saw on September 11th, when many of the Muslim officers, um, their family members were being attacked for wearing a hijab or being Muslim, they still stood and protected the city. I'm saying the same now with the Chinese community. And we need to always be re uh, recall their actions during this time, not complaining, not um, sitting down, not hiding, but they are saying we're going to be here for the country that we've adopted and that we love. And I'm happy to say that they have been a partner in this uh, fight that we're having on the ground. 
And so, you know, New York's many crises define the city, and you've been around long enough to know many of them, the fiscal crisis of the 70s, uh, the uh, massive uh, issue with safety on the streets of New York, uh, the September 11th attacks, the recession, all hit New York, you know, whatever pathologies or trends in, that are hitting the country, you know, you rest assured that New York City is going to get it even harder than anybody else, which is true of this virus. How is this going to define us as a city moving forward? And what is our future pretend, uh, given just the amount of people who've left the city or fled the city or uh, the budget, uh, the fiscal picture that we're facing in the city, or just the, the fear that either people who live in the city face uh, about the density of the city or people who otherwise would come and visit or come move to the city? It's clear that this is not a light switch turn back on scenario where we'll automatically will have people uh, stay, stating that we want to stay here. There was a strong belief that being in New York City was the place to go, our theaters, our restaurants, the diversity. Uh, now we're going to have a real recruitment problem. We must put in place a sophisticated uh, public uh, relation campaign to show people why our city is a great place to live. We must reshape our offices, our restaurants. We must look at the social distancing because we're far from being out of the woods of this virus. And there's many experts are stating that sometime in October, November, we will get a second wave. So we must now start building our city around the new norm. We must reintroduce uh, to telecommuting to a larger pool of people. It can't be just the affluent, no matter what the ethnicity may be, but it must be something that's inclusive of all groups. Uh, we must reshape our workplace and do a dual initiative. There are many places, this city, the infrastructure was eroded. We must have a sophisticated job campaign to go in and build these areas up, like NYCHA developments. For years, we were talking about how it was falling apart. Now, let's go in and look at a successful New Deal job campaign where some of those residents can be employed to build their areas. Uh, we're going to need more technology. Uh, let's build out an infrastructure with our young people to be part of that infrastructure of building the technology, giving them uh, the training they need to fill some of the technology, the jobs around technology. So we can have a parallel track because in many areas the city uh, was hurting, we can use this opportunity of reshaping and rebuilding healthcare system. Um, one of the major crises that we are facing is the uh, taking care of the large aging population we have in the city. We need real healthcare uh, professionals that are going to be dealing with our seniors, reshaping telemedicine. So there's some great opportunities that we need to go to those communities that were hardest hit, allow them to be part of the reshaping of our city. Let me tell you, coronavirus did not discriminate, but our deployment, our actions, our policies were discriminatory. Our rebuilding process cannot be discriminatory. Well, uh, Borough President Eric Adams, uh, this has been a great conversation. We're really thankful for your leadership and we wish you the best of luck out there. Thank you, thank you very much. Uh, we're, we are amazing New Yorkers. We've been through hard times. Uh, we're going to rebuild. And as I say over and over again, uh, New York, we got this. We're going to be fine. Let's do it together. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.